Hey everybody, thanks for listening to the Small Town Podcast. Connor here. If you enjoy these episodes, be sure to leave a review and a rating wherever you listen. It uh, helps with our viewership, so we always appreciate it. All right. My guest today is Dr. Justin D. Barnard. Now, Dr. Barnard is Professor of Philosophy in the Honors Community at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, where his teaching is motivated by the perennial philosophical question, what does it mean to live wisely and well? His scholarly interests and published work focus on issues in philosophy of religion, bioethics, technology, and human flourishing, and the philosophical legacy of C.S. Lewis. He's also got two kids and a wife. I think I'll put a link in the show notes for those who are interested in learning more about Dr. Barnard's work at Union, so you can um, access his public faculty webpage. It's got a whole list of his published work there. Again, that will be in the show notes. Now, we ended up talking almost the entire time about technology, and uh, I hope you find it compelling. I know I did. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Justin Barnard. All right. Well, Dr. Barnard. Yes. Thank you for the generous gift of your time. Glad to be here. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I've been looking forward to this one. Um, so I texted, texted, we're going to talk about technology, texted with several students uh, before meeting with you and asked what we should talk about. That's dangerous. And uh, all of them said, ask him about technology. <laughs> There were other answers sprinkled in, but consistently, I heard that we need to talk about technology. As we sit in a room As, surrounded yeah. by technological right. instruments. Yes. 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 The irony is thick. Apparently, you're known as the professor who hates technology. Yeah, that's a terrible thing. I don't know where I get that reputation. Uh, it's it's not deserved, and maybe I can use this particular technological podcast to totally disabuse everyone of that reputation that I've gained. Or bring it all crashing <clears throat> down, one or the other. Perhaps, yeah. Because um, I don't think the characterization's fair. I'm, I'm not a professor who hates technology. Okay. Um, I, I suppose probably the better way of putting it is I'm a professor who hates stupidity. Uh-huh. Um, well, there's plenty of that. There is, and I think um, a lot of our technology today exacerbates stupidity. <laughs> so what's, what's stupid and what's not? Yeah, this is a tough question, So, and it probably needs some more specificity, okay. um, and maybe we can work some of that specificity out as we go. Yeah, we've got plenty of time. Um, but I think um, maybe, maybe we'll back up and, and try to work our way towards that question, if that's okay. Sure. Um, so you want to start with more of a bird's eye view? Yeah, I think I do. Um, so the first thing to say is that uh, technology is, is, is inescapable. It's an inescapable reality of the human condition. And it's not just inescapable. Uh, I think it is indeed part of what makes us human. Um, I think we're, we are tool users. Um, this is one of the ways in which we fulfill God's creation mandate for us um, to uh, cultivate and keep the earth, to tend it and keep it. Uh, to steward it, and um, that's impossible apart from making something of the world we inhabit. Um, Human beings make and build cultures, and in the process of making and building cultures, um, they do astonishing things. 
And I think that's something that we should celebrate. I think it's something we should think of as a good. I think it's something we should think of as a gift. Um, language itself is a technology, and uh, I make my livelihood using words. So mm-hmm. um, to say that someone hates technology or should hate technology or should despise technology is, is really kind of silly. It's, it's almost a way of saying that you hate being human, you yeah. hate our human condition. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to be accused of hating our human condition. Um, <clears throat> I think um, probably the, the reason that I have a reputation for hating technology is simply because uh, I'm, I'm one of very few people who, who simply want to ask questions about our technological habits, um, and especially our technological habits in the late 20th century, early 21st century, mm-hmm. um, particularly with regard to the rise and just the proliferation of digital and mobile and automated technologies. Um, because part of what also makes us human is that we have bodies and... Um, and that our, that our bodies are not just a, a significant part of who we are, but in, in, in a much deeper sense, they are, they are the essence of who we are. And I do think that one of the great challenges that we will face in the 21st century technologically is what should we do with human bodies? Um, what should we do with human, human beings? Um, because we're right now on a, on a trajectory uh, technologically where many of the basic embodied activities that we um, engage in on a day-to-day basis uh, are, are simply going to become obsolete. Um, and that includes both work and leisure. Um, I think you see it now a lot more in leisure. I've seen that just over the course of my lifetime. Uh, everybody spends their, their leisure time these days uh, consuming media content. That's, that's the way we engage in leisure activities principally today. Um, whereas when I was a kid, uh, right, yeah, that, that yeah. old expression, um, uh, there, was, there was a lot more embodied activity that occupied time for, for kids uh, when, I was, when I was younger. Um, that's going by the wayside increasingly. Um, increasingly we're seeing people opt for um, uh, forms of uh, entertainment and forms of experience in their leisure time uh, that either involve virtual reality or just simply something like a streaming platform, watching Netflix, series on Amazon, those kinds of things, uh, consuming music on their iPods. And um, prior to the advent of digital technology and all these options, um, we had to find ways to use our leisure time with our bodies. But in addition to the leisure time, you have the work issues too. Um, nowadays, algorithms are increasingly better at doing almost everyone's job. Uh, and that, that's not just um, jobs that are, um, let's say, industry-type jobs, um, manufacturing and shipping and distribution, but it's increasingly even jobs um, for which people spend many years and many thousands of dollars to get degrees. Um, uh, pharmacists, for example, I think are probably going to become quickly a thing of the past. Um, I think radiologists are going to become thing of the past, those who even interpret the x-rays. A lot of diagnosticians in medical fields are going to be um, put out of business by really smart computer systems. 
And as we see this increase more and more as we move deeper into the 21st century, I think the great challenge we're going to face as a society, if not as a globe, is uh, what do we do then with our bodies as human beings? And <clears throat> I think in a small way, uh, I'm, I'm trying to raise that question early for people, and I'm trying to raise it even in my own life. Um, if I have the option of doing something more easily uh, through some kind of digital interface, should I opt for that? Or should I actually opt for doing something um, the hard way, where what the hard way means is the embodied way, the slow way, the inefficient way, yeah. precisely as just an affirmation and a celebration of the goodness of my embodiment as a human being? And, um, and, and I want to put that option before my students. Um, and so I think part of the reason that I have uh, a reputation for being someone who doesn't like technology is simply because I'm one of the few people who wants to ask those sorts of questions. Yeah. yeah. Well, it does seem like few people are asking them. Yeah. Um, it seems, it, it does seem like there are going to be quite a few jobs that become obsolete pretty soon. And if I remember correctly, there's a 2020 democratic candidate who's running largely based on that fear in particular. Um, do you think that there will be other, other less menial jobs that will replace them? Or do you think that it's just going to be a, just a vacant spot? I, I don't know. The, I, I hesitate to, to make prophecies and predictions yeah. about the future because um, I'm not good at that. That's not my forte. I don't know whose forte it is. I think all, all I'm simply trying to point out is that we will have the capacity um, uh -huh. to render many of these tasks... Uh, or to, to offload them to machines, should we so choose as a yeah. society. And I think it's just the presence of the choice that's going to create the conundrum. I mean, historically, if we look back over centuries, um, we, we haven't always faced a choice of quite this magnitude. Mm -hmm. um, and we have, had, we have gone through different time periods where um, jobs have been replaced by machines or, or certain kinds of things have changed as a result of the introduction of machines. And I think what we're experiencing now is similar to that. Um, there had to be a huge one early on in the 1900s with cars replacing horses. Absolutely. That was probably a big one because there were a lot of industries based around the use of horses. Absolutely. And I, I'm not a scholar of that time period, but um, those who, who are, um, you know, have studied the, the transition in labor from wheelwrights, skilled wheelwrights who used to make uh, wheels for wagons and, and those who began to work on the early assembly lines mm -hmm. of cars like the early Ford models. Um, and there were lots of uh, very particular struggles that even took place over those kinds of labor changes. And uh, I suspect we'll see similar kinds of, of struggles taking place. H what will replace them and how they will get replaced, that's yeah. unclear. Um, and I think, um, you know, depending upon who you ask, there are different versions of the preferred future for what this looks like. Yeah. Um, but I do think we are facing a new question, and that's the question of what, what to do with human beings who have bodies. Uh -huh. um, what, what do you think is driving all of this change? I mean, what, what is the driving force behind technology in general? Well, on some level, it's just um, human creativity. Um, it's, it's human uh, interest in possibility uh, and um, advancement of our understanding of the world and our capacity to manipulate it. Uh -huh. 
And those things aren't in themselves uh, intrinsically bad. Um, I think those are things throughout history which have driven positive changes. Um, you know, for the record, I'm, I'm a fan of the fact that um, we have vaccines. I'm a fan of air conditioning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I, don't, I don't look with nostalgia to the past. Um, the book of Ecclesiastes says, Say not, why were the former days better than these? It is not from wisdom that you ask <laughs> this. Yeah. And I take that to heart. Um, I, I'm not looking back to some nostalgic past era where things were better than they are now. Um, but nor am I foolish enough to think that everything that's always driving forward momentum is always getting better. I think the history of the world is much more complicated than that. And I think yeah. it takes discernment and wisdom to know how to, to live wisely in the era that one inhabits. And I think if I'm seeking anything right now in my own life and in the lives of those students that I work with, it's that. It's mm -hmm. how do I live wisely in the era in which I'm placed? one in which there's tremendous change that's taking place and, and one in which some of these changes may end up in the long run being very much for the good, but not all of them uh, yeah. may be for the good. And, yeah. and so I'm trying to discern uh, how, to, how to carve out um, some space in, in, in the midst of that transition. This is something I've been trying to get a, hand, uh, get a handle on for months now, uh, just trying to figure out what I think about the issue at all. Yeah. Um, I, one thing that has has come to mind, but I don't think it's a it's nowhere near a full enough answer. But there's something about technology that's always aiming towards efficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's a particular task, and it's trying to help us do that particular task better, whether at the expense of all the other tasks or, or what have you. The problem is that our culture here in America really values efficiency, but technology is also growing in places where it's not as highly valued. Yeah. So I, I don't think that's a full answer then, because it doesn't account for the rate and the magnitude at which the whole machine is growing. Yeah, yeah. There's no doubt that one of the big pieces, especially of, of digital technology, is the capacity to transmit uh, information in, digital, in digitized form at, at very rapidly uh, mm -hmm. from one point to another. And to whatever extent everything can become digitized, uh, that means that everything uh, can be transmitted at, at really rapid paces, um, increasingly rapid paces. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of trends to try to digitize everything. Uh, in fact, uh, one, one prominent author has actually identified this as a movement. He calls it a new religion. He calls it the religion of dataism. Um, and okay. he says that uh, everything uh, must get digitized uh, in, the, in the future. And so one, you know, one practical way where we're seeing this is people are increasingly um, uh, digitizing aspects of their day-to-day -day bodily experience by wearing Fitbits or by wearing things that monitor their pulse, monitor their heart rate, uh, monitor just very, various kinds of biomedical aspects of their, their bodily life. Um, recording conversations. Yes, recording conversations. That's right. We're digitizing this exchange between yes. you and I. Yes, um, and making it available for other people to listen in. That's right. That's right. And so um, all of this push to digitize every aspect of, of a person's life, um, you know, whether it's 
thermostats in your home, whether it's things that monitor how much you have in your refrigerator and communicates with the grocery store, um, whether it's the new cars that you're purchasing that are monitoring and tracking your every movement. Yeah. Um, the, the idea is somehow that the more we can digitize um, things, um, sort so of something will come out of this, this great, great for us. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's part of what's behind it and what's driving it. How have you, how has, how has your concern for this changed your life on a practical level? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think probably uh, the person who has shaped me the most in terms of thinking about these things is uh, a thinker by the name of Matthew Crawford. Okay. There's a couple of important books out. Uh, one is called Shop Class as Soul Craft. Yeah. Um, a second one is called The World Beyond Your Head. And it's interesting. Um, Crawford is uh, my age, and since he's my age... I think um, we we probably share uh, some we have, we sort of resonate, if you will, generationally in terms of what we've seen and what we've experienced. Um, and there are, there are there are a couple of small similarities between his own life experience and journey and my own. And I think that's part of what has made his analysis so compelling to me. But the central point that he emphasizes in all of his work is he talks about the loss of agency. Um, and for him, what he means by agency is he means uh, the capacity to use our bodies um, to engage in skilled activity. Okay. Um, and so he focuses on things like repairing motorcycles or cars. He focuses on, in his second book, he talks about those who repair organs, um, pipe organs, those who... Uh, do glass blowing, um, perhaps even uh, uh, those who, who do some kind of skilled activity in sport, like playing hockey or shooting a basketball. As opposed to enjoying someone else doing it for you? Is that the idea? Yeah, as opposed to enjoying someone else or hiring someone else to do it for uh -huh. you, or even, um, uh, or, or even just not engaging in any kind of skilled activity whatsoever, right? Yeah. Passive consumption um, of, of something. And I think one of the things he's thinking about as a, as a philosopher Crawford is thinking about is he's thinking about the way in which um, this type of agency of using our bodies in a skilled way not only uh, provides a certain kind of satisfaction to the person who has an opportunity to do it, but more deeply it actually um, reflects and reinforces our humanity in a significant way. And so he connects this kind of agency to his account of, of human freedom. And for him to be free uh, is, a, is an achievement, it's an attainment that someone um, uh, gets to at a point in their life where they have uh, achieved a certain level of agency, of mastery, of manual competence over what he calls the built environment, the world. Um, so to be able to act authentically in the world is to be able to use one's body in a skilled way. And um, I think that central concept that, that he talks about in, in his work 
uh, is one that resonates deeply with me. And so coming back to your question, how has my thinking about these things changed my life? It's made me think about um, aspects of skilled agency that I may have been cultivating when I was younger, that is to say prior to the digital revolution, that to some extent has gotten lost post-digital revolution Mm -hmm. and has made me think about going back in some sense, trying to pick up some of those things that gave me a deeper sense of fulfillment as a human being. Um, So here's a small little trivial example. When I was in elementary school, um, I was homeschooled for a period of time, and I took a couple of years of penmanship. Um, And it may, may seem strange to think of penmanship as a form of skilled agency, but it really is, and I think it is even in Crawford's sense. And um, for a good period of my um, teenage years, um, I actually had really nice penmanship, <laughs> if I may say so myself. Um, and, um, and then I got to college and started doing what all college students do, which is typing my papers the night before they were due on the new computers that were in the computer lab. Um, and, um, and so I sort of dropped my handwriting, dropped the practice of handwriting. Um, and in recent years, just because of my thinking on these issues, um, I've gotten back to doing a lot more of my work um, with my hand, um, with, with, with a pen in my hand and a piece of paper, um, simply because um, there is something that's much more deeply human about even my own thought process when I'm thinking with a pen in my hand and I'm putting crafting those thoughts on a piece of paper with a pen. Now, I know not everybody will find that compelling, but you asked for a personal example for how, how this sort of changes and affects my life. No, that's really interesting. That's one. Uh, because as a musician, I've noticed that my creativity comes quicker with a pen in my hand than it does if I'm typing. Yeah. And also... Um, taking notes while I'm reading, if I have a pen in my hand while I'm reading, even if I don't write, just having it in my hand, there's something about that that sparks the, yeah. the creative process. Yeah, and I think the music example is a great example, um, though I think that in this case, a kind of analogous situation would be someone who went from playing a musical instrument when they were young to going to just mixing things in the digital world, right? Yeah. Um, there may be certain skills that are involved in creating a digital mix uh, using sounds and, 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 and that kind of thing, electronic uh, pre-recorded um, music. But um, I think as any good musician will tell you, that that skill set is much more narrow than the skill set that's involved in actually playing a guitar or playing a violin or playing a piano or playing a brass instrument of some kind. Yeah, and And the... The distinction, in part, hinges on the fact that to play a musical instrument involves the whole of one's bodily attention. Um, If you're playing a wind instrument or a brass instrument, you're having to attend to your breathing. If you're playing um, a string instrument, you're having to attend to the positions of your fingers. And and then when you reach a certain level of competence in in, um, using those instruments, then um, you have, in some sense... um, you've begun to um, encode your thinking really literally in your fingertips, um, which is, I think, a wonder of, of human agency. Yeah. And, it, and it's something that I think um, somebody like Matthew Crawford uh, has really 
wisely attuned himself to. Yeah, if you look at the the scale at which the music industry is growing right now, there are more people, it seems like, there are more people who are good at the sound design than there are at the singing and playing. Yeah. yeah. Like there are so many people who can edit that they're pulling in people who can't really sing just to keep up. Right, right. And, and, and so I think, um, you know, this is, this is again an example where we're going to eventually have to ask a question because at some point the algorithms are going to become better at the sound engineering yeah. than the sound engineers themselves. Right. And there are, all, are already um, people who are experimenting with um, algorithms that are capable of composition, right? Mm-hmm. And, and where what we mean by composition is we mean the ability to mix together sounds and, um, or even to, to compose possible sounds, yeah. right? Patterns of Patterns notes. Patterns of notes yeah. and things like this. And I think when, when all this begins to get, become more common, we're going to be faced with a question, well, what is music for, right? What is writing for? Um, what are these basic human activities that human beings have done for centuries for? What is gardening for? Um, and and I'm, I guess I'm optimistic, actually, that mm-hmm. there will at least be some people who will say, um, I find joy in these basic human activities, despite the fact that it takes me longer to write a sentence with a pen than it does for me to type a sentence on a computer. Um, I find joy in playing a guitar or playing the piano, despite the fact that it's much more difficult and challenging to learn how to do that than it is to download 10,000 songs on my iPod. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if, if, we can, if we can get to some of those more basic philosophical questions, there's a lot of room for optimism, even in the midst of this really challenging period of, of human history where we have all these technological options at our disposal. Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to beat the music analogy to death, but it is a really interesting one. I mean, how less than 150 years ago, give or take, if you wanted to enjoy the sound coming out of an instrument, you had to be in the room with someone who knew how to play. That's right. It's very recent. That's right. Where anyone can listen to the same level of skill at any point That's right. over and over if they want to. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And that is, that is a, that's a shocking change. Um, and I think that's probably part of the reason that we've seen even just a decline in the number of people who make music, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if, Which it, is ironic. It is, Because right? music is expanding still, a, right. at least in the number of songs that exist. That's right. So, so the, the number of pieces of music that are available for our passive consumption increases exponentially, right? right? So we've turned into a society that's focused primarily on content generation, but not on the practices uh, that actually make us human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's the thing that eventually we're going to have to confront. Um, what is it about you know, these practices that are worth preserving? Um, and I think there's some people who are already onto that. There's some people already doing that. I think you see this in um, movements that are artistic movements where people are engaged in, let's say, making pottery on a small scale, right? People who are engaged in gardening on a small scale. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to mention this, but craft beer movements, right? Making beer on a small scale. Yeah. Um, I think the people who are doing this are doing it because they recognize that there's something intrinsically worthwhile about the activity itself. That is uh-huh. to say, it's worth doing, even though... I have all sorts of technology at my disposal that could do it faster uh, and perhaps even on a larger scale 
than I'm currently doing it right now. Um, and that includes something as simple as the choice to go get a burger at McDonald's versus spending two hours firing up your charcoal grill in your backyard, right? Um, can you get a burger more efficiently at a fast food place? Sure, you can. Um, and possibly even more cheaply, yes, you can. But um, if, we can, if we can begin to change the question, if the question just isn't about efficiency and, um, and scale, but instead it's about uh, these fundamental activities which really make us distinctly human, um, I, I think there's, then there's room for someone to say, uh, yeah, I'd rather spend 25 or $30 to cook a couple hamburgers on my grill than to just go to McDonald's and grab a burger really quickly. Yeah. Not to say that uh, there aren't times when you have to go to McDonald's. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've got kids. <laughs> the time and place for everything. Yeah. Are there any other practical examples in your life? Well, um, that you care to share. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've um, uh, so, so I guess just so that everybody understands, I don't hate technology. I think most of my students know this. I do own a smart, a smartphone. I do own an Android phone. Um, but I've tried to, um, I've tried to keep my use of that phone regulated by the metaphor of tool using. Um, uh -huh. so I, yeah. So I really think of it as a tool, and because I think of it as a tool, um, I only use it w when I need it for a particular function. Um, so I'm not on social media uh, because I don't think social media serves any kind of tool function. Um, I think if you're on social media, well, I'm on record as saying this, I think Christians should be off social media at this point. Ooh, really? Yeah, we can talk about that if you'd like. All right. Um, but I... But I don't use my phone um, unless I have a purpose. And, it, and at night, I actually keep it in my garage um, charging next to my toolbox, partly as a vis visual, visual reminder that it's a tool. So I make it inconvenient uh, for me. Um, even when I'm uh, on campus, I will often park it right next to my landline phone in my office. I won't take it with me when I'm walking places, unless I already know ahead of time mm -hmm. that I have a use for it. Uh, so for example, since you asked us to silence our phones or, or put them in airplane mode today, I just decided not to bring mine. I yeah. came here straight from home. I don't have my phone with me because it was not a tool that I needed. Um, my family knows that I'm here. They know how to reach me if there's an emergency. Um, and, so, and I didn't have anyone that I was expecting a text from or a call from. I don't need to check email during these two hours. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's like a hammer. I left it at home, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah so. Maybe this is a cop-out, but I found airplane mode to be really helpful. Um, I think it's a good, I think any kinds of disciplines that you can incorporate in your life. I, I don't, yeah. I'm not going to accuse anybody of, of being, a, of, you know, of, of engaging in cop-outs or hypocrisy. I mean, these are all struggles where I think each of us have to sort of learn to find find our way mm -hmm. um, in the midst of really challenging landscape. Um, and I think any things you can do to sort of um, decrease the invasiveness of these things in your life um, are helpful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you... Um do you have some kind of system where you only check email at work and things like that? Do you do you leave some tech at work and and a home is kind of an escape from it? Well, I don't want to I don't want to turn my home into an escape. I don't okay. want to think of home as an escape. Okay, because um, I think um, that's that 
could be a problematic way of thinking about okay. one's house okay. just generally or one's home generally. Um, but to answer your question, I've tried um, to some extent to place some some parameters on the degree to which I check my email. Um, I'm less successful as I'd like to be at that, uh, and I continue to, to work on it. I continue to struggle with it. Um, that's partly because um, I, I became a fairly early adopter of email. Um, I remember I got my first email account when I was a graduate student in the late 90s. Um, it was a uh, DOS-based email system. I don't nice. even know if s- some of the listeners may or may not even know what that is. Um, but it meant that I could choose um, to either have black background and white text or white background and black text, and that was it. And I didn't have font options or anything like that. Um, and I remember just as the the iterations of various uh, email software just kept coming out over the years and the improvements I saw and the speed at which um, internet connectivity increased, it was just a marvel to me. And, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think when I got my first job after my PhD, I think I was just... I marveled at the fact that I could sit in my office and just have these instant communications coming to me and I could respond to them instantly. Um, and I, I, looking back, I, I realized that that probably shaped me in some unfortunate ways, very likely even on a neurophysiological level, um, because I think there's some good evidence now that, that when we get these pings, um, that, that they're probably giving us happy um, hormones in our bodies, yeah. um, which, which is, works a lot like addiction. And, and so um, I suspect that, um, you know, by the time I started to become cognizant just intellectually of some of the dangers of these things, my habits had already been to some extent not well formed. Um, I'm better, let's say now, in terms of my discipline with email uh, than I was, let's say, 10 years ago. There's no doubt about that. Um, but would I like to be better? Yeah, I'd like to be better at those parameters. The addiction thing you mentioned is really interesting. Yeah. I did kind of a little experiment on myself um, when I first started reading about this stuff. And I did this thing where I would comment on something on Facebook, just something random. And I would check my phone um, at a certain time and I would comment and I would check it at a different time. Like I would have a longer gap. And the amount of likes and feedback that the phone would give me depended on how quickly I would respond to my phone. So if I would respond to my phone quickly, it would send me another like as soon as I put it down. But if I waited a while, the notifications would kind of go away. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah. So it's tracking your own behavior. Yeah. Yeah. It knows exactly when the timing of the positive reinforcement has to happen. And it's based on screen time and how quickly you're able and willing to pick it back up. That's right, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, in my own life, um, in terms of just coming to understand and coming to grasp the degree to which this technology has sort of a grip on my psyche, um, came in part with the opportunity that I had a couple of years ago to take a research leave where I spent some significant time studying and reading about a lot of these these digital devices. Oh, so it was about technology specifically? It, it was, yes. Okay. My research leave was related to digital technology. And, um, and when was this? This would have been in the spring of 2017, I believe. Okay. Yeah, spring of okay. 2017. So just a couple of years ago. And... Um, 
as part of that research leave, one of the things that I wanted to do was I, I wanted to to just run some some own personal evaluation, personal reflection in terms of my own digital habits. And so um, I intentionally uh, checked out of email, um, work-related email, for um, weeks at a time. Um, and um, this was during a period where I was still coming into my office because I was reading and researching. And one of the things that I realized the very first week uh, to two weeks where I, where I did this was I realized how many of my unconscious patterns um, had been shaped by the practice of coming into my office very first thing in the morning, opening my inbox immediately to see what messages were there. Because literally for the first two or three days, I had to stop myself. I had to be intentional uh, about sort of reaching for the mouse and immediately clicking on Microsoft Outlook to open it up to see what kind of emails had come uh, during the, the, the evening before. And then even once I got over that physical habit, um, which is almost like a habit of reaching for a cigarette, it really is. Um, I also found myself for a couple of weeks th at various times in the day wondering, mm. are there messages in my email that I should be checking right now? Are there messages that are important that I'm missing? I, and, and I think it's, the, it's probably the psychic energy that's, that's taken, taken up by the way in which these digital devices insert themselves into our consciousness that, that was even more a profound discovery for me personally and, and maybe even more scary. Um, and, and just the realization um, that that was the case um, was sort of a wake-up for me to think harder about my own habits. Um, and, and, and not because I think there's anything nefarious about email. Again, it's a wonderful tool. Right. Um, but it's more about uh, do I really want this tool to be sort of the central preoccupation of my thought life, of my conscious life? That's really the, the question for me. And, and for me, the answer is no. And so... Mm. I'm asking myself, what steps can I take to make sure that it's not? Yeah. And that's a tough battle to fight in this day and age. Are you familiar with um, Cal Newport stuff? I am. I have not read it, but okay. I'm aware of it. Because he, yeah. he has a detox plan that's pretty similar to what you just described. Yeah. yeah. It's like a 30-day thing where you get away, and then you only bring in back what, after a long time of introspection, you decide is essential or most valuable. Yeah. I, I think these things are great. You know, on some level, I could probably write similar advice myself. Yeah. The, the challenge is, is that, um, I, I, for at least for me personally, I don't, I don't know if I have gained enough wisdom to actually tell someone, here's the plan, <laughs> okay. right? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning a lot yeah. and I'm happy to share the things that I'm learning, but I'm always... I'm always skeptical of experts who uh, offer money-back guaranteed plans sure. um, simply because they're selling something. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and even though those things may be helpful, they may be good, um, I'm not sure they're getting to the, to the deep wisdom that I'm personally after. Uh -huh. um, yeah. Well, one thing that really resonates with what you described, and I don't remember hearing as much about this in other other sources, 
um, they might be there. I may just not remember. Is you you made a point that it's not just about taking something away; it's about replacing it with something better. Yeah, and that's huge. Yeah, um, I learned the same thing recently about fasting. Yeah, um, you know, growing up, I, the church that I go to practices Lent every year. Yeah, so fasting is a regular part of the year within my experience. But recently, it's really hit home that the point is not so much to take away food; it's to fill it with something that is uh, not necessarily better, but uh, a good, yes. instead of just getting rid of the evil. Right, right. And, and, and we should say, for the record, as I know you know, food isn't an evil. Right, right. So, right. so we, don't, we don't fast from things um, because they're wicked. I mean, one of the things that I talk about in, in a course that I teach um, that you've walked through with me um, is that fasting is a diagnostic tool. Um, it is a, it's a tool that enables us to assess the degree to which certain goods may have their tentacles into our life, right? Um, because I think that's the danger. The danger is idolatry. The danger mm-hmm. is that any of these goods, um, and again, I want to emphasize, the technological goods that we have now are magnificent. They're astonishing. Um, and the same is true of the food, right? We have, we have an astonishing array of food that's available to us today in this world. And, and the danger is that their goodness may become our single-minded obsession. Yeah. And we don't, I don't think we often grasp um, the degree to which some of these things may become our central preoccupation until we fast. And that's why, yeah. that's why fasting is such a great diagnostic tool. Yeah. And, and so when I did this little experiment, I, I'm hesitant to call it a fast, but you could call it a fast, sure. um, from email, that was when it began to hit me. Wow. My, my expectation about emails or getting emails or seeing emails, receiving or responding to emails, that has a pretty deep grip on my psyche on a mm-hmm. day-to-day basis. And it has it to an extent that makes me uncomfortable, um, and I'd rather not have, it, have that kind of grip on my psyche. Well, I think I remember reading that last year the number one thing that people fasted from, I don't know how they would know this, but the number one thing that they fasted from was technology. It would be getting off of Facebook yeah. you know, over the period of Lent or, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that's become popular, and it's, yeah. it's become popular to talk about technology fasts. I'm not sure that I personally favor the language of fasting in relationship to technology or even uh, technological Sabbaths. It's not traditional, for sure. It's not traditional. Um, and, and I think the other reason I'm hesitant about it is because there are certain cases where a, a person's um, connection to technology uh, is not in a good state at all, uh-huh. um, and so to talk about fasting from it um, is 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 maybe not quite the right language because probably there's a better way of describing that situation. Yeah, yeah. Fasting from sinning is that's not, right. That's is not right. Really fasting. That's right. That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Huh. Man. Yeah, and so if if a person if a person's relationship to technology is fundamentally sinful, um, then then they're not, uh, they, they, they don't need to fast from it. They need to stop sinning. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Social media. Yeah, social media. You so. said you said all social media Christians should just be off of it at yeah, this, and you said should. at this point. Yeah, at this point. And I, and, um, and I guess that's, uh, so, so, so let me, let me try to frame that, because I know that's a big claim. Um, I, and I know it's probably, um, yeah, it, it almost just sounds ridiculous, sort of like 
really? Um, how many billions of people are there now on Facebook, um, Instagram, Twitter? Yeah, and the, the number of platforms is growing too. Yeah. Um, I think the shortest way to try to explain my position on this is I don't see that social media in any way, shape, form, or fashion has contributed to human flourishing. Um, and someone would have to do a lot of work to convince me that it has. I think if there is evidence for anything, and these things are always hard to prove because correlation is not the same thing as causation. Sure. But um, if, if I were going to make a case, I would make the case actually that the rise in the use of social media has actually led to a lot of detrimental trends in our society, right? Mental health. Mental health, polarization, balkanization of political and social groups, inability to talk to one another across different kinds of ideological divides. Yeah. Um, rise in things like bullying and hate speech. Um, obviously, pornography is an epidemic. And, and, and so, certain platforms are a haven for it. That's exactly right. Um, and, and a haven for it in ways which are just unprecedented in human history, yeah. right? Because yeah. of their capacity to exploit people who are young and unsuspecting. Yeah. Twitter in particular, from, from what I hear, is pretty bad. Yeah. And, and so, and, it, and I suppose the general line of thought is, is that... Um, I'm not seeing that social media is contributing to the to a rise in virtue. Uh, it's not contributing to making people better people or making communities better communities. Um, and this is true even on a, even I think even for some um, really optimistic progressives, I think have realized this at least to some extent. Just to give you some examples, there were lots of there was lots of optimism that. Twitter would bring about great revolution in the Arab world, right? In the Arab Spring, yeah. they talked about this. And it just didn't, right? Yeah. It, it didn't yeah. happen. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, there's still lots of efforts to try to use social media platforms to quote-unquote mobilize people or to quote-unquote put together some kind of movement, advocacy movement otherwise. Yeah. Um, but for the most part those things just don't seem to be um, the, the, the things that are bringing about positive change in our society. And, and someone would really have to do a lot of work to convince me otherwise. Yeah. Um, now, I know the, the pushback that I get a lot of times from, uh, from Christians in churches and things where I've spoken on this before is that, um, well, uh, m social media can be a platform for Christians to evangelize. It can be a platform for uh, Christians to sort of, you know, get the gospel message out there um, and, 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 and sort of forge these meaningful connections with, with other people. Um, and I suppose I'm open to that kind of reasoning, but what I'd really like to see <laughs> is I'd like to see some empirical evidence yeah. that, that this is now yeah. this is really being effective. I mean, the, the fact of the matter is that, especially in the West, um, we live in, in just one of the most uh, gospel-saturated cultures in world history um, in terms of information, right? Uh, and that's, that's been true over the course of my whole lifetime, right? Evangelicals have often been on the leading edge of embracing various kinds of technological platforms precisely for the purpose of the distribution of the gospel. 
um, in its informational form, whether it's television, radio, uh, leaflet printing, uh, and, and now, of course, social media is just an extension of these things. And, and if that were really having the radical transformative effect that people sometimes argue that it does, um, I think we should, we should think that our, our culture should be different. We should see some differences in our culture, but we're simply not. Well, to, to, assume that, to, to assume that we are able to use it to that extent also assumes that there's a neutral force behind it right. that doesn't care who uses it, and that's not really true. That's right. That's right. And, and it also assumes that the platform it, itself um, is, is itself um, capable of communicating what the gospel is. Yeah. And this is probably the thing that I, I challenge my students most on, is the gospel is not information, right? So in other words, what, the, what social media platforms are valuable for is what the internet is basically valuable for, slash what the digital world is valuable for, namely the transmission of information at really rapid speeds. But if you reduce the gospel to nothing more than ones and zeros, then you have missed what the gospel really is. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. Um, and maybe more specifically, it's the power of God's announcement in Christ Jesus uh, about the forgiveness that his death brings and about the ways in which that can change and transform a person's life. And I think in order to come in contact with that power, the power of God, then what a person really needs to come in contact with is they need to come in contact with the incarnate Christian community in the form of Christian witness and the preaching of the word. Um, and I'm not sure that that's what they're coming in contact with when they come in contact with a digitized Bible verse. Um, I think, you know, and, and I think I have the evidence, I think, of church history on my side on this one, right? Um, at Pentecost, um, you know, the, the Holy Spirit descend, descends on the Christian community and empowers the Christian community to be living and breathing incarnate witnesses. Um, you know, God could have easily given them all um, iPhones, right, and, and said, here, just broadcast this message around the world. Um, now, I have to be careful here because I realize that when I say these sorts of things, everybody's going to tell me a story about someone who got saved because they saw a television show or somebody who got saved right. because they heard a radio broadcast, especially in countries around the world where um, access is blocked for missionaries, and sometimes radio is the only way that the gospel message can be transmitted. Um, so I'm not, I'm not asserting that, that God can't use these things. Obviously he can. He can use talking donkeys. Um, he can use uh, the sun to blind someone he wants to call to be an apostle. He can use visions. He can use dreams. God can use anything he wants. The question isn't what God can do. The question is really, as a practical matter, how should we be investing our energies, given that our energies are limited? And, and my only point is, is that I think... Generally speaking, it's probably a waste of our, our witness to be frittering away our time um, posting our latest meal on uh, Instagram. <laughs> I, can't, I can't figure out why the conversations tend to devolve so quickly, yeah. especially on Twitter, but it happens on Facebook too. Yeah. Um, at least Instagram is just all about pictures, which has its own set of problems. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of you know, envy and depression that goes along with that. Sure. But if you're trying to have thoughtful conversations with other people, especially on the other side of political issues, yeah, 
it devolves so quickly into name calling. Yeah, and I I can't figure out why. I think it's because that's that's the way that the whole system is set up in terms of reward structure, right? I mean, in you other get words, more feedback if yeah. you're negative. Well, not so much if you're negative, but if you have the capacity to score points in 140 characters or less, uh-huh. right? So, so in other words, the just the form itself of uh, of Twitter, which is is really strictly limited to a certain amount of data at a time, yeah, um, it, it's going to it's it's going to sort of favor those who have the capacity to sort of um, send just the right barbs, right, or score just the right points. Um, those who are the wittiest, those yeah. who are the quickest, those who are the sharpest, and and of, of course, you know, the ability to be witty is is a small good, um, as is the. So, so the I'm not disparaging having a quick wit or making a good joke. Um, that that's that is itself a, a good of a friendship, a good of human exchange, but that's not a guarantor of truth, right? And if what we're really yeah. interested in is getting to the truth of something, then I think that requires more serious, more sustained dialogue than than just the ability to um, sort of throw back and forth these one-upsmanship, if you will, right? Um, and I think the the reason it devolves very quickly is because, well, if you're cornered, it's a human reaction. If you're cornered by somebody who's wittier than you, um, even in real conversation, your instinct is going to be to throw back whatever barb you have at your disposal. And that may be name calling. It may be mudslinging. Yeah. Um, because you're simply trying to save face and win points, perhaps with your own crowd. Um, and I think the platform itself. Uh, facilitates a heightened form of that um, because you're protected from real face-to-face exchange. Uh, you're, you're not sitting right across from the person. Yeah, there's less risk involved. That's right, there yeah. is. And so you're probably more likely to, to, to say things that you wouldn't otherwise say in person mm-hmm. um, because there's no risk that you're going to have a face-to-face encounter or fight. Yeah, well, that in turn also gives the impression that the, the, the sides of political discussion are getting more extreme. Yeah. When in the real world, they're, they're not. That's you right. Know, there are a lot of people in the middle there that are. don't fit in either of the extreme camps. Yeah. But the extreme camps are the loudest on social media. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, you make a pretty good case. <laughs> well, I don't know if it's a good case or not. I, I'm sure there are, uh, there are probably arguments against it. So do you think that some of the platforms are worse than others? Or do you think they're all I ha- equally dangerous? Um. That's challenging uh, because I haven't so um, little known fact about Justin Barnard. Uh, I was on Facebook for about two weeks back in uh, 2006, I think. 2006. Yeah. Things were not nearly as crazy as they are now. They weren't, but I, I experimented with it. Um, and I, in the experiment, what I came to realize just in that two-week period was um, this is bad for my soul. Um, wow. okay. I, I at least had the that at least had on. the foresight, yeah. And I think the, probably the biggest thing that I realized this was bad for my soul. I realized two things. One, I realized if I stay on this, this will consume me. Um, and secondly, it will consume me in a way that is entirely oriented towards vanity, um, because it, at least for me, in terms of my initial engagement with it, it was all about image management. So you mean vanity as in pride? Yes, I do. Vain okay, glory. not like meaninglessness. No, not okay. like meaninglessness. I mean being vain. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, um, it w- because it was all about asking the question, even if subconsciously, 
what sort of image do I want to broadcast yeah, yeah. to to all the people who might be looking at right. this? Right. Yeah. Um, and you can't do a negative one. It's got to be that's something right. great. That's right. Yeah. It's got to be great. And and I realized that if if I stay on this, that what I will become consumed with all the time is. Am I the wittiest person? Am I the cleverest person? Am I the person who can always have the last word? Am I the coolest person? Am I the person that everybody is impressed by? And how can I build my my life to be impressive? Now, yeah. I'm not saying that everybody who gets on social media is like that. Um, I, I realize people are different. People are wired different. But for me personally, I knew immediately I've got to get off this thing and never go back. And I never have. Yeah. Now, I've never... I've never been on Twitter. I've never been on Instagram. And honestly, I've never felt the pull uh, for any of those things. So to answer your question, I, I don't think I have been enough of a, at least a firsthand student of the various media platforms to, to sort of rank them in, in, um, in their potential for, for danger to a person's soul. Maybe to some extent that has to do with the unique propensities that each p- sort of person has. Maybe some are more dangerous than others, depending on, on what kinds of um, inclinations you may have. That's kind of what I was wondering when I asked the question. Yeah. So like someone who particularly struggles with anger should probably think about getting off of Twitter first. Certainly if it's something that they're finding themselves getting angry about. Yeah. Right. I mean, right. If, if, you're, if you're always getting angry over someone's tweets, that's probably not helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, I, I tend to think, um, but I also, I guess another, there is another way of looking at it that's independent of the question of what kinds of struggles a person has, and that is which kind of platform is potentially most addictive. Um, and that may be just a matter of the neuroscience. It may be which are the most sophisticated at providing the quickest feedback, um, yeah. highest levels of dopamine, uh, those kinds of things. And as in, as is the case with other addictive things, some people are more susceptible than others. That's right. Some people can smoke cigarettes well into their 90s and be just fine. Yeah. Other people, you know, die from it pretty early on. Yeah, yeah. And so, so I think there's different ways of assessing the relative danger of different social media platforms. But I think my, my, my general comment about why there really isn't anything redeeming about social value is, is independent of the dangers, right? The danger, there's all kinds of particular dangers. My point is really just I don't see it contributing any posi- in any way that's positively good. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, um, I can do all of the informational things that social media enables people to do without any of the social media platforms, right? Um, So, for example, if I want to have a kind of extended digital communication with someone who's far away, uh, I can do that either through email. Uh, If I want to do it in real time, I can do it by the phone or I can Skype. Mm -hmm. Um, If I even want to take a bunch of pictures and send them to someone or share them with someone, I can do that by email or by a Google Drive or Dropbox or something like this. And so all of, the, all of the tool functions that social media platforms um, have um, have already existed um, for, for quite some time. They're not revolutionary in that respect. I think the way in which they're revolutionary, and this is precisely the reason I find them problematic, is, is that they are um, ways to uh, basically live out one's existence in a broadcast format, um, and that just sort of strikes me as, 
as not a way to live a human life well lived, um, which is why I tend to think we shouldn't be bothering with these things. Um, there are better things for all of us to do with our time than to, than to be broadcasting our lives. Um, and you, you can definitely see this with even some of the most recent advances in some of these platforms, right? So Facebook's feature of of you know, sort of filming yourself live at the various events where you are. I, I mean, this is this is just sort of the ways in which people want to inhabit the world. Um, and I think it's a strange way to inhabit the world. Um, and so, if 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 the issue just is, well, I want to be able to communicate with people who are far away. Well, fine, communicate with people who are far away. Uh, but you don't need a social media platform for that. If it's, I want to share information with people who are far away, fair enough, share information with people who are far away, but you don't need a social media platform for that. Um, so I just don't see the need for them, really, as a tool. Because I don't think they are a tool, and that's probably the key. Um, I think social media platforms are turning those who use them into the tools. Oh. <laughs> And that gets to things that are probably more conspiratorial and maybe a little bit too crazy for this podcast. But well, I do worry about big data, the collection a, of big there's data. A, there's a pretty like simple way to look at it that I don't think is too conspiratorial, and it's the fact that it's free. Yes, that's you know, right. Someone has to pay for it. That's right. Because the powers that be are making money. So that's where right. are they getting their money if it's not from you? Yeah. That right. means if you're not the customer, then you must be the product. That's right. And and there are there's increasingly people who are now writing about this. There's we're seeing people who are just being more intentional about trying to put these pieces together. Um, and, and it's, I think, probably the average, um, the average citizen in America would probably be blown away by the amount of information that some of the big tech companies possess about them and about their day-to-day habits. And maybe even how interconnected those companies are with that's each right. other. That's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. And, um, and again, I, I don't mean to be too conspiratorial, but I do, I do think sometimes a little about issues of privacy, and I, at least insofar as they're related to human flourishing, right? Um, what, what aspects of my life shouldn't belong to um, a third party, if mm. you will? Um, are, are there aspects of my life that shouldn't belong to a third party? Are there aspects of my life that... Um, should in some sense be lived only before the face of God uh, or my closest friends. And, um, and, and maybe not everybody shares that same uh, concern that I have and its connection to human flourishing. Um, but insofar as they do, then I would say you should think hard about the extent to which you're embedded in social media. And I realize it's difficult. Uh, you know, nowadays, if you want to use a map, um, Google's going to know where you are. Um, it's going to know where you've been, and it will know that forever. Um, and, in, and on one level, that's a wonder. Uh, in fact, I was just uh, on a trip recently to St. Louis, and we were using some digital navigation in the city, and I even commented to my kids who were in the car with me that this is just a marvel of technology, that I can drive through a city that I've never been in before, and that the satellites which are coordinating my position know exactly where I am to within about 50 feet every, yeah. every move I go. And, and that is astonishing. It's astonishing human achievement. Um, and so I don't want to give people the impression that I'm somehow, quote unquote, against that. Um, but um, I do think about things like, um, you know, um, how all that information is going to get used. Um, and um, I'm not 
because I'm a student of human history, I'm not always optimistic that every human being who's going to have all this power at their disposal is going to use it well. <laughs> I think we've got good evidence that yeah. that stuff powers like that don't always get used well. Well, if it's if it's made by a human, then it's a mix of good and bad, right? That's right. That's, it comes yeah. with the territory. That's right. So I've got two. I've got two directions this could go. I guess I'll stick with the current for now. Uh, where do you think podcasts fit into all this? Wow, that's a great question. Um, because they're kind of unique in yeah. the span of options right now. They are. I, I think, um, so So let me say what I think is good about them, at least potentially. Uh, and, I, and this is going to sh- reflect my bias as a philosopher. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a fan of dialogue. Um, this is old, right? This is Socrates. This, this goes back deep in the roots of the history of Western philosophy. And, and I tend to think that, um, that dialogue, conversation, um, is, is the, the way in which, um, truth is discovered. Um, let's, let's talk about this together. I, I think there's something sort of deep there that's related to the nature of God as triune, and the way that which truth manifests itself. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. And I think um, one of the things I like about podcasts is that um, it isn't just simply um, one person or one entity who's simply transmitting information. Um, it's, it's, in fact, a real live uh, conversation between people, at least insofar as the, the particular podcast has that form. Sure. Um, and a lot of them do. And a lot of them do. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that's good. I think there's something good about that. Um, I think that what's challenging about it is the same thing that's challenging about writing. Um, okay. And that is that as soon as you have recorded it, <laughs> um, it almost becomes something else. Yeah. And, and then what begins to happen with it is that it, it becomes an artifact in future conversations that others will have in the same way that writing does, right? So Paul writes a letter to the church of Corinth, or Paul writes a letter to the church of Ephesus. Paul writes a letter to the Thessalonians. That's a dialogue, actually, right? There's, there's something that's living and happening there. But now we're reading those letters. Yeah, um, and, yeah. and, and something different is happening now with the way we read those letters than what was happening in terms of the conversation that Paul was having with Corinth when they asked him questions and he answered them back. And we only hear one part of that ongoing discussion that probably took months. That's right. That's right. And the same, so, so the same sort of risk or the same sort of danger is going to be present here with a podcast, right? Um, you and I are, are trying to have a conversation together, and, um, and, 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 the, and, and you're going to record that, you're going to package it, you're going to put it out there, and it will only be, first of all, a snapshot of the fact that you've been a student of mine, and so we've had opportunity for prior exchanges that no one will sort of have as part of that framework. Right. Um, and people also won't have access to even the living dynamics, right? The eye contact that you and I have right now, the, the motions, which can't be captured, which I keep making uh, with my hands, right? Which no one can see. So, yeah, And that's a huge part of conversation. The nonverbal that is. is 
prob- there's probably more nonverbal communication than actual communication. That's exactly right. So, so, so people may have a hard time telling whether I'm making a joke or, yeah. um, or whether I'm making a serious comment, um, despite my efforts to put the right kind of inflection in my voice. And, you know, I think um, if we look back at one of Plato's old dialogues, um, Socrates had this same worry about writing. Um, he was worried that there would be limitations with, with the written word, that it would not be able to express as dynamically what incarnate conversation between, among people could, could do. Um, and I think that's right on the one hand, um, but I also think that there are things that written words and things that recorded conversations can, can also do um, that dialogue can't. So, so there's, there's costs and benefits uh, uh, on both sides of something like that. So it's really interesting that you, that you compared it to writing yeah. because um, there's, a, there's a public intellectual out there who has been talking about podcast technology, and I'm interested because I'm a podcast host, and he compared it to the Gutenberg Revolution. Interesting. He said that podcasts are the second Gutenberg Revolution. Interesting. And it's in yeah. its very early stages. Yeah, that's um, really, really interesting. So you you basically made the same analogy, just in different words. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I, I Again, because I'm not a prophet, I'm not a cultural prophet, I, I don't know um, wh- whether that will turn out to be true. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it's interesting... Um, it's, it's also interesting in terms of the limits of what conversations that are recorded can capture and, and in terms of what they can do. Uh, I mean, one of the things that writing has done for us is it has, um, it has enabled uh, the, the rise of, of rational linear thought. Um, yeah. And conversation like, like this is much more dynamic, uh, much much less linear. Uh, I hope I hope not less rational, <laughs> at least in this particular case. There are more rabbit trails for sure. There are more yeah. rabbit trails. Um, there's some there's some circles and coming back and looping around. Um, and it would be interesting to think about that fact uh, of conversation in in light of uh, this Gutenberg revolution idea, because if it is a revolution. It's a revolution that's going to have a different kind of effect on the ways that we think um, than than writing would have, than print would have. Yeah, uh, and that's that's interesting to think. Well, about. one thing that I've noticed just with the discipline of meeting with someone new every week, it's forced me to make sure that I can talk personally about the things that I'm talking about. And I yeah. mentioned this in a previous episode, but with academic papers, you can have a lot of footnotes. Yes. And you can say, this came from this person, this came from that person. I don't have that luxury with a format like this. Yeah. So I have to make sure that I'm not just stealing other people's ideas the whole time and pretending yeah. that they're my own. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I think that's one factor. I think another factor is, too, that um, you have to be uh, personally invested in it in a way that academic writing doesn't often require. Hmm. Um Academic writing and writing in general, I think, enables the writer to distance themselves from their words. Um, whereas almost third person, yeah, almost third person. Um, whereas when you're speaking to another person, I think there are some standard expectations about conversation, standard assumptions about conversation that have to do with honesty and truth and um, sincerity and and things like that. Yeah, e- even even though those things make wit possible and irony possible and um, 
but those expectations, I think, require of a speaker a kind of subjective investment that um, writing may not always require. Yeah. 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 Well, we emailed a little bit about this back and forth, but one of one of my reasons for starting a podcast in the first place was I wanted to force myself to meet more regularly with people in my immediate surroundings. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's very much an experiment where I'm, I'm trying to use this, this global technology to encourage localism, at least for myself yeah. and hopefully for other people. Yeah. I mean, my dream with this would be that someone hears our conversation and emails you and wants to meet with you because they were really interested and they want to hear more about it. Sure. Like, that would be amazing if that happened. Yeah. The danger is that I might end up using this as just a crutch. Right. Right. Well, it is... um, I I don't want to accuse you of using it as a crutch, Um, (laughs) but it um, it is a danger that the captivation of capturing a conversation may become an end in itself, right. as opposed to um, the the more deeply human practice of seeking out genuine friendships. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we're sitting here right now, and there are two mics literally in between us. That's right. So there's and a whole a physical, lot of wires. Yeah. So there's a physical <laughs> barrier. Right. And there's weird things on our ears. Right. I don't normally wear headsets when I go to a coffee shop and have yeah. coffee with a friend of mine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah. It's a new thing. And it, yeah. it is very much an experiment. So I guess we'll see how it turns out. Yeah. But I, again, I don't, I, I don't want to s- sort of write off the format of a podcast as to somehow intrinsically wicked. If I thought it was intrinsically wicked, I wouldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't have agreed. Yeah. Um, but, I, but I think I want to help people think about its, its strengths, but also its limitations right. at the same time. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's not neutral. You're right. That's right. It is geared towards a particular end, a particular purpose. Yeah. And I think we can say with some clarity that that end is capturing and recording sound uh, and and storing it and transmitting it, which is what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, What else do you have on technology from a philosophy perspective? I mean, I do want to ask where you think all of this is going, but you said you are not in the business (laughs) of prophecies, so... Yeah, I do. I, I do have a particular take that I th- I thought a, quite a bit about and developed during that time that I was on the research leave, studying it in terms of where this is headed, um, and I tend to frame it in in um, Christian theological terms. Um, so the way in which this the sort of the basic architecture of of my thought uh, for this particular issue is to think in terms of the overall narrative of Scripture, which is creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Okay. Um, and, and I think that um, the, the, the digital technology that we have at our disposal today has a structure um, which expresses um, its own ideology about those four different dimensions of, of the scriptural narrative. Um, and that if we are discerning about it, we can, um, we can actually see the trajectory, right, of, of where is this going. Could um, you unpack that a little more? I can. Um, so, so in the creation narrative, um, the, the biblic- the cent- one of the central biblical questions is, what sort of creature is a human being? Okay. Um, and... And, and in, in Scripture, um, we, we get that 
that a human being, uh, this, is, this, this is at least my short take, um, there's a lot that's packed into this and I've written a few things about it, which are as yet unpublished, but um, my short take is that human beings are um, creatures who um, are ultimately made for conversation with God. Um, and the way that I like to put this is the perfection of which is song or is singing. Um, so really the shortest way of saying this is we were made to sing. Um, now, if you're asking, well, what are we made to sing about? The answer is ultimately everything. It's, it's, um, we're, we're to, we're made to sing in, in, uh, sing about the truth, uh, to sing, uh, sing about God, to sing in our, uh, joyful relationships with one another. Well, I'm, I'm going back to C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. They both understood this. Yes. That, that's what's going through my head right now. Yeah. And, and. And particularly, we, in order to sing, um, we have to be made of dirt. And so this is why the scriptural narratives tell us that we're made of dirt, we're creatures of dirt. Um, and, and I think if you contrast that to the digital narrative, the digital account of, of, um, of human beings is that human beings are, um, are basically um, nothing more than, um, than appetites um, Ra- basically rational appetite maximizers. This is what human beings are, right? So that the goal okay. of the human life is to sort of maximize as efficiently as possible the satisfaction of our appetites through rational means. Um, and I think those are, those are sort of two fundamentally different anthropologies that are at stake. Um, in terms of the fall, of course, um, he, he, Christian narrative has an account of how human beings have gone wrong um, in that process, in the process of um, supposed, supposed to take up our priestly vocation of singing and rejoicing in the presence of God. Um, I don't think that the, the digital devices that um, we see in our world today really manifest um, any kind of account of human fallenness. I think they take, um, they, they take the assumption, the fundamental assumption is that there's really nothing wrong with being led by our appetites and being led to maximize those uh-huh. um, and I think that's another danger there that we, that Christians especially should be aware of um, in terms of uh, sort of the third movement redemption or the soteriology the salvation part um, obviously uh, Christian story is about Christ who saves us um, but he saves us through the the difficult um, work of embodied sanctification um, and in, that is to say, we've, we are saved by following Jesus, right? Um, this, this is what the important point is. And so... If we have time later, I'm going to want to spend more time on that. That's one okay. of the topics I wanted to talk to you okay, about. Okay, good. Okay. If we have time. Well, you're, you're going to be the one who has to keep the time, because I, okay. have, I have no timepiece on me. Okay, all right. <laughs> and I can't see one in this room. <laughs> um, and I think there, um, what the digital world is offering is it's offering basically an alternative picture of salvation, where salvation comes through... Your, your body, right? So the offer is um, we, will, we will maximize the satisfaction of all of your appetites as efficiently as possible, but the sacrifice you have to offer that you have to give up is your embodiment. Um, and so this sort of gives you a trajectory now to think about what we might call digital eschatology, right? Christian eschatology is new heavens, new earth, redeemed creation which is, and resurrection, which is a fully embodied world. And as I like to say it, God loves dirt. Um, and 
whereas the, the digital world, I think, is going to offer um, sort of the maximal satisfaction of your desires as efficiently as possible, only if ultimately you're willing to give up your embodiment. And this is why I think we have people now who are saying with a straight face that everything has to get digitized, right? And ultimately, that means even your own consciousness has to get digitized. I, we, have, we have very serious-minded people who are looking for ways to try to upload brains into computer systems. Um, and these are people that affect our lives on a day-to-day basis. That's exactly right. They're not fringe scientists. Right. These are people who work for Google. Yeah, um, yeah. Who, who are attempting to do these things. And they're, they're attempting to do these things with a straight face. They, they mean it quite seriously. And I think the reason they mean it quite seriously is because they do, even if, even if subconsciously, really see that as this is our future salvation. This is, our, this is the way um, that these things need to go. And... and you can actually make sense of why someone would think that uh, on yeah. a very simple level. And the very simple way to do it is, is to say this. Um, if your desires compete with my desires, um, then, then there's a danger that you and I might fight over it, right? And that's not just true on an individual level. It's true on a tribal level. It's true on a level of countries, right? And so if we're going to prevent um, harm to one another... The, the quickest way to prevent harm to one another on a bodily level is just to get rid of our bodies, right? I think that's one of the things that makes um, immersive digital environments uh, so attractive for people because they can live out certain kinds of fantasies that they have, um, be they violent or sexual or otherwise imaginative, um, in, in ways where, quote-unquote, nobody gets hurt, right? Um, and what this is about is it's about satisfying our desires, satisfying our appetites to the maximal degree possible um, while avoiding, you know, any kind of consequences. Two of those consequences being harm, the other one being death, right? Which is why we also have to solve that problem. Yeah, digitally. immortality. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, I don't think most people are thinking that deeply about it. Yeah, I, I suspect not. But look, I get paid to do this. So in some sense, it's, it's my vocation to think hard about these things. And, and it's then, important. And then to try to podcast about yep. them. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, that's huge. Um, I am currently rereading the book, Transhumanism and the Image of God, mm. written by, I believe, one of your colleagues. Yeah, Jacob um, Schatzer. Yeah. yeah. And it's, uh, so he talks a lot about transhumanism. Yeah. And I didn't realize until reading that book how much that way of thinking... Would you call that a philosophy, transhumanism? Yeah, I think, I think it thinks of itself as a philosophy. Well, uh, I didn't realize how, how, uh, how widespread it is. Yeah, I, I don't... It's, it's, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, in other words, it's a good question to ask how, when you use the word widespread, how widespread that is as a philosophy. It is, I, I, I tend to think very few philosophies as such are very widespread. Okay. And that's because when I think of the word widespread, I tend to think of um, the person that I might run into at Kroger. Um, Who and, says I'm a transhumanist? Yeah. Okay. And, and, okay. I, and, and I tend to think that the average person on the street in the United States of America um, is not going to embrace, at least self-consciously, any particular kind of philosophy, much, you... much less a philosophy as sophisticated as transhumanism. Sure. Now, we... I will say this about the widespread thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. think um, 
so, so the first thing to say is transhumanism is a recognized philosophy in academic circles. And there are a number of really prominent thinkers at prominent mainline uh, universities and colleges around the world who would self-identify as transhumanists. They would embrace a transhumanist philosophy um, and they would seek various venues both to sort of promulgate a transhumanist message but also to encourage, um, you know, companies and, um, and even countries to embrace certain kinds of transhumanist policies too. Um, so in that sense, it is a, it's a prominent philosophy. Um, it's not a, it's not, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not totally fringe if you want to put it that way. Well, also, you know, if the products that they put out are made with a specific philosophy in mind, it would exist to serve that, right? So people would every day be coming in contact with uh, that way of thinking without realizing it. Yeah, that's that's true. Although, um, although I I think there are probably more subtle ways in which these things tend to unfold, or, okay. or in which they especially in the popular arena. Um, so because there's a difference between, I guess, the, the thinkers and the developers who are on the leading edge of technology and of technological development and the way that some of those things trickle down to okay. consumers or to the people that you meet in Kroger. Okay. Um, so, for example... As you know from from reading, from your own reading, um, there's a leading thinker out there who's really involved in the immortality movement whose name is Aubrey de Grey. Um, Okay, so your average person at Kroger is not going to know that name. They're probably not going to know that there are thinkers and gurus out there who are really interested in trying to extend human lifespan indefinitely. But... um, it's not, but what's probably going to happen is um, that that the kinds of developments that some of these leading edge thinkers are working on will eventually trickle their way back down into ordinary medicine, right? So, um, your average person on the street who goes to see their doctor, they don't want to die, right? <laughs> um, and so, if the doctor is going to offer them, you know, various kinds of possible possibilities for yeah. just quote unquote extending your life or extending the quality of your life. Yeah. Um, your average consumer's probably just going to embrace that. They're going to say, okay, that's what I like. That's what I came here for. But that doesn't make that average consumer a transhumanist necessarily. Sure. It doesn't mean that they're sort of self consciously operating out of a philosophy that seeks virtual immortality. Um, In the same way that. In the same way that someone like uh, Ray Kurzweil is seeking it, right? Who works for Google? He's an okay. engineer for Google. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, it's well known that he's trying desperately to live till about 2045. He wants to make it to 2045 because he thinks that's the point at which there will be this major revolution in the relationship between human beings and digital technology that might enable him to live forever. Yeah. Um, and so, so yeah. So Kurzweil is is really living self consciously out of uh, out of a desire to live forever. The average person on the street isn't, but the average person on the street might be susceptible to new technologies that do that because yes. they have a basic desire to want to live longer, right? Um, 
And if someone says to that basic person, hey, you know, your, your arms and legs are wearing out, we can replace those with bionic arms and legs and you can get 20 more years. Okay, some people may not go for that, but there'll be some people who will. Sure. Um, and, and if the technology gets good enough, there may be people who go for, you know, total neurological overhauls or things like this um, if, if we get to a point where the technology is both cheap enough and effective enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is fascinating stuff. It is. Yeah, it certainly is in terms of where we're headed and the choices that um, our children and grandchildren will have to make. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the purpose of humans is to sing, huh? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that, um, and, and that's, that, that's in one sense metaphorical, uh, it's in another sense literal. Right. Um, I, I think that um, the reason I pick the, the image of singing um, is because I like the picture um, that it suggests of something like attunement. Um, uh-huh. That when we sing, um, when, when you get together and sing with others, you sing in a choir, um, you're, you're engaged in uh, probably multiple tasks, but for now I'm just going to start with two. You're engaged both in producing sound yourself, um, but you're also engaged in listening to your neighbor next to you. And then in a certain sense, the two of you together are actually trying to attune yourself to this third thing, which is the note or the pitch that you're trying to achieve. Yeah. And, and of course, you, in some cases, you might be trying to hit the same pitch. In other cases, you might be trying to harmonize with that pitch. But there's a really beautiful sort of Trinitarian relationship that's happening in that moment, right? Uh, where you have two people who are singing and there's this third thing that's present. And it's the third thing that's present that's regulating the way that they're singing, both in relationship to itself and in relationship to each other. And um, I've only been thinking about this just relatively recently, so this is really still ink still wet kinds of thought. But um, I do think there's a sense in which... um, God has made us to rejoice in himself. He's made us to rejoice in his truth. And that that and so I like the idea that singing actually reflects that joy. It reflects that rejoicing. And and yet what's happening in the singing is in some sense that the that the truth is is dwelling. And I want to use a, a word from standard Trinitarian theology. The word is perichoresis, which means something like mutual envelopment. Um, uh, the word literally means dancing around, and it's and it's that the truth is somehow situated perichoretically in the midst of that joyful relationships among the persons who are singing and reaching for this thing that is the shared focal point, um, and that to me seems like the right, or at least close to the right, picture for for every dimension of our lives as creatures made in the image of God, right? that it captures um, how we're situated in relationships to the two great commandments, to love God, that's the vertical dimension, and to love neighbor, that's the horizontal one, right? Um, It also um, expresses something, I think, about the nature of God as triune, and it also expresses something about the basic posture that we ought to have towards the good world that God has made and toward God himself. Um, And so... 
the the way in which um, we were meant to inhabit the world um, is in a kind of singing mode. And one of the things I suggest uh, in this project that I've been working on, tinkering on a little bit, is that this is precisely what Adam does when he names the animals. It's also precisely what he does when he sees Eve, right? He sings. Yeah, it's a song. It's a song. Yeah. And, um, and so, um, so we see Adam occupying the world in precisely that mode. And, and I, the reason I want to emphasize this, too, is because I think for far too long, Christians have, have thought... Um, have, have, have had this mode of thinking that's been too dominated by the world of information. And I think this goes back much deeper than just the digital revolution. I think mm-hmm. it even goes back to the print revolution. Um, and I, and I want to prioritize, I think, something about oral cultures, right? Um, and, and, the, and the way to express this is um, that Christians often want to reduce truth itself to just information. Uh, and, and I see this a lot. I've seen this a lot in my own vocation in uh, work that gets done in apologetics, right? So information becomes a weapon. Um, we want to use information to sort of defend the truth and to promote the truth and to argue for the truth and to defeat our opponents and defeat our enemies. And on one hand, I, I don't want to, again, I don't want to disparage that emphasis. I think that's important. I think there's a place for apologetics uh, and apologetic arguments. But one of the things I started thinking about a few years ago was, um, well, what happens when it's all over, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when, we've, when we've won, so to speak, or when God has finally triumphed or finished his triumph uh, in the eschaton, um, what then? Uh, what do we do? And if truth is nothing more than information, if that's all that truth is, if, if it's just information, well, then it seems like there's nothing, there's no more role left for truth. And I think that's part of what got me thinking about the role of singing, um, because singing is something that um, one can do. It's a mode uh, or a, a posture towards truth that one can inhabit eternally, which is to say you can rejoice in the truth etern- eternally. Um, and one picture for this can come out in, um, in G.K. Chesterton uh, in, in Orthodoxy. He talks about the, uh, the energy of a young child who has the capacity n- to never become bored by doing the same thing over and over again. And so the, the posture of a child who gets pushed on a swing is, do it again, right? Do it mm-hmm. again, do it again. And, and I think what's important about that childlike posture is, is the joy. It's the singing aspect of it. And so I think if we can learn as, as human beings, but particularly as Christians, to begin to approach um, our lives, including our approach to truth, with, a, with this posture that I'm using the metaphor of singing, um, I think that's how we sort of begin to live into are what we were always meant to live into. So fun fact, my three-month-old son yeah. doesn't respond to painting or sculpture, but he responds to singing. That's fantastic, yeah. So there is something more almost primal about singing, something closer to what it means to be human yeah. that, that you don't see necessarily in some of these other art forms. Yeah, I want to be really careful about that because I'm going to alienate a whole bunch of my colleagues in the art department who are into the visual arts. And I'm not <laughs> saying better. I'm not saying better. 
I, I do want to though emphasize difference. So yeah. so so one yeah. way to emphasize difference is this: um, sound is uniquely immersive. Yeah. In a way that sight isn't right. So just to take a really simple example, I can't now see what's behind my head because uh-huh. my eyes have a limited range of view. And the same thing is true even something tactile. I can only touch a few things at a time. But you can put me in a room where there's an orchestra playing and quite literally, physically, the waves, the sound waves themselves permeate my body. Um, and, and so the, uh, there, is, there is sort of interpenetration that actually takes place in a, in a Trinitarian way in terms of my relationship to sound. So I do think there is something unique about the medium of sound. Um, I don't know whether that uniqueness has any implications for what forms of art are better than others, and I'm certainly not going to go there. Yeah. Um, because I would, again, I would make some of my colleagues who I can think Th- of there, right now. There would be a fight. There'd be a fight, and we don't want to use technology <laughs> to start any fights. <laughs> yeah. Um, so one thing that popped into my head while you were talking was that singing involves self-sacrifice mm-hmm. because as long as you're singing, you're literally not breathing. Yeah. You are cutting off your own air supply. Yeah. Um, and I also think about tuning a guitar. You said attunement. Yeah. If you tune a guitar, you, you're making the strings kind of suffer by pulling them almost to the breaking point. Yeah. And it's at that almost breaking point that the right sound is. Yeah. But it's in alignment with all the other almost breaking points. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. No, that's that's a great that's a great illustration. Um, I had not thought of the connection between sacrifice and cutting off your air supply in order to produce the sounds. Um, I mean, you can't sing while you inhale. That's it's, right. That's right. And in order to, you're, I guess you're closing. I'd, I'd have to study the physiology, but you, you're probably right that in order to actually create the sounds of the vibrations in your vocal cords, you're having to sort of squeeze off the air supply at least temporarily. There, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, and I hadn't, I hadn't thought about its connection with sacrifice. Um, but I do think, I, I suppose part of at least what I had thought about was, um, was the posture of submission to something else, right? Yeah. Especially when I sing communally. Yeah. Because I am trying to make sure that I'm, that I'm not out of sync or out of harmony with those that I'm singing with. Yeah. And, and likewise, that I'm not out of sync with that pitch that we're aiming for together. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, most people aren't bothered if something is out of tune if it's the only thing that's being played. But right. if it's out of tune in comparison to things next to it, it's way off. Right. And people don't like that. Right, right. So, so, so on, a, on a really sort of broad creational level, right, this is why I think God creates a world in which he hopes that everything unfolds in harmony, right, in attunement. And of course, it's part of the Christian story that it doesn't, um, and so what, this is what we've lost, but, but where we're headed for is we're headed for that kind of attunement. Um, and and I, I think the reason that I'm attracted to the notion that we were made for singing is because, not, not because I have some view of heaven where we're all going to play with harps or something like this, I, I find most of those images terrible, <laughs> but, but because that gives me a way of thinking about um, about eternal joy in, in well, concrete that, terms. That imagery had to come from somewhere. You know, if it's yeah. not in the original scriptures, I mean, there is singing in heaven yeah. in the Bible, so maybe that's where it came from. But the idea sure. of people playing harps, it had to come from people who are having sort of the same ideas about it that you are. 
Perhaps I, I don't know. There is. I mean, there are there are creatures who sing in Revelation in the divine presence, um, yeah. and so on. And I, I suppose um, there's sort of a tr- traditional. I, I, and I suppose in the history of the church, um, I suspect that certain kinds of music have been associated with the divine. Uh-huh. Um, so it's so yeah. I suspect there's there's associations there. Yeah. Cathedral space and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Um. Wow, we're already over an hour and a half in. All right. This is awesome. Okay. Um, do you want to talk more about philosophy in general, or do you want to talk about salvation and sanctification? Wow, neither. But I'll talk about sanctification okay. and salvation. <laughs> okay. Maybe it's a preference over philosophy in general. Okay. <laughs> is there something else you'd rather discuss? Uh, no, I, I, hadn't, I didn't come with any agenda today. Okay, all I'm, right. I'm at your disposal. Okay, all Tell right. Tell me what you want me to talk to me. Um, well, you mentioned sanctification earlier. Yeah. And That's tough work. You mentioned it like it's the primary goal of this whole discipleship yeah. thing, as though something else happens after you say the prayer. Yeah, right. Yeah, no, I, I do. I think that's important. Um, I think, um, so and I want to be careful here because I don't want to, um, I don't want to, um, yeah, I, I don't want to say things which will... Um, Give the give the wrong impression on on any different number of fronts sure. where 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 we could go wrong here, um, but um, I do think that there is a tendency sometimes in um, in broader American evangelicalism to think that um, to think sort of like this that that what I need to do while I'm here on earth is I need to, quote-unquote, get saved. And then once I've gotten saved, I've sort of gotten my ticket punched for heaven. And and then once I've gotten my ticket punched for heaven, or I've gotten fire insurance, depending on how you want to think about these things, um, then maybe the rest of my time on earth um, maybe should be spent trying to make sure other people get saved. Um, but beyond that, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do with my life Aside, just sort of aside from just living like every other American lives, yeah, and um, and I think um, there's a lot of dangers with that picture of things or with that picture of the Christian life. Um, one of which is I think it's unbiblical, but um, probably another big important danger is that it it results in a kind of schizophrenia for a lot of American evangelicals, and the schizophrenia goes like this. My my future eternal life with God is is no longer in any meaningful way really connected with my present life on earth. I see those two things as just sort of in fundamentally different categories. And so the Christian who tries to live out their life under this kind of picture is on the one hand looking forward to the day when they die or when Jesus returns and they're with Christ forever, and they're looking forward to it because they've got their ticket punched, but they don't really know what they're supposed to be doing in the mm-hmm. meantime, right? And it's, yeah. it's almost like standing on the waiting platform with your ticket punched, and you're just waiting for the train. Um, and I, I do, I, I want to I say, out of genuine kind of pastoral concern, I really think this causes a lot of problems for, for Christians in their life, psychically, yeah. because they just don't know what to do with that tension. Um, and that's why I say... For many of them, they sort of try to fill up the time when they're on the platform with the ticket stamp um, 
trying to get other people saved, that's to say, get their ticket stamps, and then otherwise just trying to live out a, a 21st century American existence. Um, and and I, the reason I feel a pastoral concern about that is because I think I can understand how that would be a deeply unsatisfying way of living the Christian life. Sure. And and it shouldn't surprise us that it's a deeply unsatisfying way of living the Christian life, because I think it's an unbiblical way of thinking about the Christian life, right? Um, so what's a, what's a better way? What's the biblical way of thinking about the Christian life? Um, God, the answer is simple. God saves us in Jesus Christ in order to transform us into the people that he always intended for us to be. That is to say, the sorts of people who can sing in keeping with the, the harmony of who God is for eternity. And and what I, I suppose I like to emphasize uh, about sanctification, and you can call it that if you like, that's a big theological term. I'm, I'm not as much interested in the terminology as I am in sort of understanding the reality. Yeah, yeah. Um, is I think that the way we should think about this is that um, when when God saves us in Christ Jesus, he, he immediately, in this present life, in our present life now, begins to transform us, begins to transform me into the sort of person that I need to become in order to rejoice eternally in being a creature who sings. Um, that is to say, in order to become the sort of person who loves God and loves neighbor in all the ways that I should, with the right kind of attunement. And so that becomes my life pilgrimage into eternity, and it starts now. It starts the moment that I am renewed and regenerated in Christ by the Holy Spirit, right? So he gives us new birth by the Holy Spirit in order that we may grow up into this kind of maturity, right, in Christ. And, um, and so my present life is no longer disconnected from my future eternal life. There's a kind of seamlessness between those two, so that everything that is now taking place in my present life, everything that's happening to me, everything that I'm doing, every experience that I'm having, every challenge that I'm facing, every um, trial, every um, vocational question, all of these things are aspects of God working in my life to make me into the kind of person that I need to be made into in order to sort of fit in the choir, so to speak, the eternal choir. That's what's happening to me as a matter of sanctification. And so, yeah, it's not just an extra important part, it's, it is the whole point. Um, that's, that's what I would want to emphasize. Well, my interactions with you up until today, uh, I think we're limited to one particular class. It was a, a class called Virtue and Vice. Yeah. That, are you still teaching that class? Is I that am. Still, still okay, is. Yeah. yeah. So that's a really interesting class because it's only, well, first of all, it's only for a month. Yeah. Um, secondly, it's an exploration of our different proclivities and yeah. struggles right. and practical... Uh, practical antidotes yeah. uh, for, for those struggles. Right. Um, and I think that out of all the classes that I took during my time as a union student, that was one of the three that influenced me the most. 
uh, just because it's so intensely practical. Yeah. Um, now, this really does tie in with technology because we all have different struggles. Yeah. And we have different, I, I guess the traditional term is vices, yeah. which is more about a habit than about one particular moment. That's right. Um, That's right. So some people have a particular struggle with anger. Yeah. Some people have a particular struggle with envy. Right. Uh, I didn't realize until taking the class that one of my biggest sin problems is greed. Mm. I just didn't realize that. Wow. Um, yeah. Because I didn't have the, the vocabulary for it and the... Um, I guess I just hadn't thought about it that much. Yeah. Uh, being forced to do some soul searching like yeah. that was really helpful. Yeah. What's it like teaching that class year after year? <laughs> Terrifying, <laughs> really. Uh, it really is. Um, yeah, that class has been just the greatest blessing in my life, but it's such a difficult journey um, every time I go through it. Um, and it was a blessing for exactly the same reason that you just cited. Um, my own moral vocabulary just has expanded mm -hmm. phenomenally as a result of studying and immersing myself in this material. And I think that's important because um, it's, like, it's like a kind of medical diagnosis. When you, when you have this larger vocabulary, you're able to say with more precision and more specificity, here is my struggle, here's the thing that's really got its grip on my soul. And, um, and so I understand exactly what you're talking about in terms of not realizing that this was my deep struggle um, until I began to have some concepts and some language to express it, uh, because the same has been true for me. Um, but journeying through that material year after year with my students um, is, is, is very challenging um, because it it renews my sense every year of all the ways in which I continue to struggle with many, um, many, many difficult vices. Um, sort of a footnote just on a practical level related to that specific class. Um, I have been teaching it for about eight years now as a January term class at Union. And so it has been a class that's met for about four weeks. I will now be moving that class to a regular fall term oh, wow. starting this fall wow. for the very first okay. time. Okay. Um, um, now, I won't be doing it yearly. I'll probably be offering it every other fall. Um, that's so exciting. It is exciting, and I'm excited about it. It's interesting. It will be interesting to teach it in a 16-week format, um, and I've got some things that I'm going to try to be able to do with the class yeah. That, yeah. Will, that will be, I think, really exciting. Yeah. Well, I'm glad we talked about this then. But I'm Maybe also nervous, be a, too, yeah. that because 16 weeks is a long time to spend with that material as opposed to four, um, and, I, and I'm hoping that it that it will be manageable and palatable both for the students in the class and for me as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah, I didn't... It, that was... It was such a huge revelation for me. I didn't realize that greed was a problem for me. Mm. I just I yeah. just didn't. But I, I wasn't living with an open hand. Yeah. So what's the alternative? The, op the alternative is living with a closed yeah. hand. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's only, it's, I mean, there's no middle ground. Yeah. And one of the challenges of teaching that material year after year is the realization that, that, that you can go through seasons of mm. struggles with, with the same things, right? So it may be that you experience a period of your life where you have some relief from the struggle with greed, and that may go away for three or four years, and then it may come back again, right? Yeah. So these, are, these are some of the challenges that I've found in teaching it uh, for me, is that 
what I, what I was struggling with at one point, I'm not struggling with as much now, but then it may recur again. Um, and I can see that fairly clearly as a result of teaching. So I had a, I had a good friend, um, during my college days who really struggled with, um, with the, the, the grace part of, of the Christian story. Yeah. Um, as in things, the things that we discussed in your class would have completely freaked him out yeah. because he, he worried so much about whether he was saved or not. Yeah. And I think some people struggle with that more than others. Yeah. So for anyone hearing this and, and who is stressing out at the prospect of thinking about all the ways that they've messed up. Yeah. Um, what, what would you say to that person? Yeah, that's a great question. I talk to a lot of students um, who struggle with the question, am I saved? And I think in my experience, what I have often found with that particular question, and especially when it gets put in that way, is that it isn't so much related to the sins that I've committed in the past. It's more related to a faulty way of thinking about how one gets saved. Um, and, as, and I'd rather talk about that for just a second. Yeah. And then I do want to come back around to what I think the practical effect is of studying intensely uh, with, with a lot of introspection, uh, the vices, as this class does. So in my experience, the, the student who often struggles with the question, am I saved or am I truly saved, is typically thinking of salvation first and foremost based on what I call a transaction model, um, where that transaction works something like this. I need to perform some kind of act um, we'll call it for right now the act of faith. That is to say, I need to put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And in exchange for that act of faith, God gives me new life. He gives me new birth. And he guarantees that I'm saved. And um, I think that for a lot of people um, who are working with that transaction model, especially if they're working with it implicitly, if that's to say, if they've never really thought about it before, but that's really what's going on in their head, the really important condition that's probably subconsciously bothering them is one that has to do with psychological earnestness. That is to say, have I really meant it when I have prayed a prayer and asked God to save me? Um, and this may get me into trouble, but I believe it, so I'll say it. I, I think that's bad theology. I think it's I think it's theology that's probably influenced a lot by uh, some some strands of thought in that probably had their seeds in early modern philosophy, in, sort of, and then probably even you know down into the 20th century w were affected by um, the psychological work of people like Freud and so forth. Um, because I really think that what Satan wants more than anything else is to um, get someone to begin to ask the question, 
have I met the interior conditions for psychic sincerity? And I tell my students all the time, if you get on that train, you will never get off because that train is an endless cycle of self-doubt and you will always, for the rest of your life, doubt your salvation. You'll I've seen it in my friend. Yeah, yeah. you'll always yeah. doubt that you meant it or that you did it sincerely enough. Yeah. And, um, and so what I, what I try to help people see from Scripture is I try to help them see that, um, that salvation is a gift of God. It's a work of God. It's a work of God's Spirit. And it's, it's right there in the classic passage in John chapter 3 when Jesus has his conversation with Nicodemus. Um, he, he, he tells Nicodemus that to be born of God is to be born of the Spirit. And, um, and just as none of us really had to do anything that really had to, had to do with psychic earnestness in order to be born physically in the first place. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So also, um, there's no like precondition of psychic earnestness in order for you to be regenerated and be given new life by the Holy Spirit. Um, now, I'm going to stop right there because I think I'm at a point theologically where, you know, if I kept pressing this a little further, we could get into some waters which are more complicated and which are the source of some theological divisions among various schools of thought. Sure. But I do think that's at the heart of this problem. Um, and, and so I try to encourage students to realize that what, when, when we talk about grace and we talk about grace being a gift of God and we talk about there being nothing you can do to, to merit the grace of God, which is just standard evangelical language to talk about the gospel, that, that they should take that literally. It's being given to you, and you don't have to go through any kind of psychically earnest machinations in order to sort of appropriate that transaction, um, that, that it's, that it's there. Um, um, so that's, that's the way I try to handle that kind of doubt pastorally. Um, now about the class, I, I do realize that the, the expansion of this moral vocabulary, talking about vices, that can be challenging. I realize that the self-examination can be challenging, but what it's supposed to do if, if it's, I think if it's done wisely and well, is it is supposed to magnify, and I now talk about this in the beginning of the course uh, specifically, it's supposed to magnify our appreciation for the magnitude of Christ's saving work, right? Um, especially for, for, for students who've grown up in Christian homes who may not think of themselves as sort of terrible or notorious sinners, right? And that's certainly true for me. I mean, I, I, yeah. I didn't murder anybody. I didn't spend, you know, 20 years addicted to drugs. Um, and I haven't had that kind of notoriously sinful life. And yet, this material makes me realize, just as Jesus taught, <laughs> I am just like those murderers, yeah. right? I am yeah. just like the prostitutes. I am, it's, it's in there. It's in there. Yeah. It's all in there. And... And what that does for me is it makes me realize, yeah, Jesus is a great Savior. He's an unbelievable Savior to save someone like me. Mm. Whereas before I had this moral vocabulary, I might have been inclined to think, yeah, he, he really died to save those people, but he didn't so much to die to save me because I probably didn't need it as much as those other people. Um, and, and I think 
know, that's, that's really a positive practical effect that studying this, kind, this material can have. So, yeah. That's great. Um, we're about out of time. Real quick, any parenting advice for a new dad? <laughs> parenting advice for a new dad. This, by the way, was also one of the things that people suggested that I ask you about. Oh, fun. How fun. But I saved it for the last three minutes. The very first thing that popped into my head is something that I just was thinking about the other day is that when you become a parent, you will discover, if you haven't already, that there will be sentences that will come out of your mouth that you never thought it was possible that you would say, right? Um, sentences like, don't put your brother in the suitcase. Um, <laughs> I mean, I never would have imagined when I was young that I would say those words or ever have occasion to say those words. Yeah. Or don't rub that warm underwear on your head, right? Um, <laughs> You know, just just things like that that just pop out of your mouth, and you, and you realize why I'm saying these things uh-huh. out loud. Um, so so just a, know it's coming. Know it's coming. Yeah, that, that's a that's a joy of of being a parent. Um, <laughs> okay. Wow, parenting advice. No, I I'm hesitant to give parenting advice because um, parenting is hard, and one of the things that every parent I think discovers is that um, before you had kids you knew exactly how to tell everybody who had kids how they ought to be raising kids. Mm-hmm. And then once you begin to raise kids, you start to realize that you don't really have any right to tell anybody else how to raise their kids. Because okay. um, it, it humbles you, it chastens you, it sanctifies you in all sorts of good ways. Yeah, I would guess marriage is probably that way too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. You, you know everything about being married until you get married. <laughs> and then you realize you didn't know as much as you thought you did. Yeah. Well, Dr. Barner, thank you so much for your time. Yes, well, it's this a pleasure to be here, Connor. A genuine pleasure. I really yeah, appreciate likewise. it. Likewise. So. Thank you so much for the invitation. All right, signing out.